This is the Depth and Light Podcast. I'm J.D. Pirtle. What's the best way to document your ideas or communicate them with others? For some people, writing is the most effective method. Others communicate best through drawing. For many, it's both. In large swaths of human history, it was not uncommon to see writing and drawing working harmoniously together. Think of da Vinci's notebooks, silver point on prepared paper, pages that are filled with both drawings and annotation. But in the modern era, from elementary school on up through graduate school, the norm is to take notes via writing. Sure, teachers might make an exception for graphs or diagrams, but no doodling allowed. But why the prescription against drawing and writing? And why do we privilege writing over drawing? Although this is a moving target and the subject of continued debate, humans have been drawing for approximately 44,000 years. Contrast that to the invention of writing systems. Researchers think that early writing systems were invented in various parts of the world independently, beginning around 3,500 years ago. So that means that humanity has been drawing 12 times longer than we've been writing. Happily, there is a growing movement in schools toward encouraging students to write and draw as they take notes, plan, and create. Visual thinking, or thinking through visual processing, is common in 65% of humanity and can be utilized effectively by those with many different learning styles. Visual thinkers like Brandy Agerbeck work to empower others to draw what they are thinking and feeling, and through graphic facilitation, help organizations see trends, make sense of many ideas in one place, and plan for the future. Brandy, I'm so thrilled to have you on the podcast, and I want to say thank you for taking time to talk to me today. I am absolutely thrilled to be here. So you're a graphic facilitator and a visual thinker, and I definitely want to get into that as soon as possible. But backing up a little bit, what path led you toward this work? So I am one of those very rare and very lucky people who is who have been on the same path pretty much my whole life. And when folks try to compare their experience to mine, I always say it's unfair because I got to be who I was as a little kid and then fell into per- the perfect work for me as an adult. Uh, I was mm-hmm. that kid who drew all the time. And mm-hmm. you know, I hours and hours and hours and hours, you know, if it wasn't drawing, it was, you know, cutting stuff out of construction paper, you know, making stuff out of whatever I had on hand. And Mm -hmm. I was super lucky that nobody told me what I was doing was wrong. You know, nobody, Mm -hmm. and I, I didn't have as I had an outer critic of my father, which I like to talk about that whole, as a whole nother story, but the inner Mm -hmm. critic, for some reason, my inner critic was, you know, not that loud. So I love drawing and nobody told me I was doing it wrong and I kept on doing it. And then mm-hmm. I, I did study fine arts. I was a printmaker. And when I got out of college, I fell into this work of something I had no idea existed called graphic facilitation, where I got mm-hmm. to do my two favorite things for a living, which was thinking and drawing. So I was you know, given a lot of space as a kid by teachers to make non-hands-on projects into hands-on projects. So mm-hmm. you know, I think a lot of kids, they experience... You know, if they don't, if they don't complete the assignment as is, it's wrong. But somehow I was really lucky to get teachers all along the way who either just let me turn, (laughs) turn my Mm -hmm. assignment into hands-on project or specifically gave me like other projects to do knowing that, you know, that's just the way I work best. So very, very lucky for that. 
Yeah, it's so great they're willing to accommodate you like that, especially, I mean, I think that's a pretty, uh, becoming a more fairly common thing, you know, recognizing different types of, different types of learners, uh, but that's really great that they did that. So you work as a graphic facilitator. So what does a graphic facilitator do? <laughs> so the, the strangest job you've never heard of uh, is that when a group is having a strategy meeting, uh, I come in with a giant roll of paper, put a giant mm-hmm. sheet of paper, tape a giant sheet of paper onto the wall, and I start mapping out their conversation. Uh, now, you, my favorite is the conversations versus like something like an annual conference where it may be keynote speakers. But when I get mm-hmm. to be there, listening to their conversation, you know, distilling the most important points. And for me, my happy place is the organizing and synthesizing and pattern finding and connecting making, um, mm-hmm. you know, getting getting to be of service to that group by making their conversation visible, making it tangible. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that might sound really abstract. And this is the kind of role, the kind of work that once you experience it, it makes perfect sense. But try to explain it in words. And, you know, everyone has to kind of make the leap into, okay, if you say you do that for a living, great. (laughs) But once Mm -hmm. you've been in the room and your conversation has been captured and synthesized and organized, then it's like, how did we live without this? This is so valuable. So it's really a combination of... um, uh, when when I say drawing, and we, I'd be more than happy to talk more about how do we broaden the def- definition of drawing, but usually mm-hmm. when you think drawing, you think representational drawing, like a court, courtroom um, sketch artist, right? That's not sure. the kind of drawing this is. This isn't portraits of the people in the room. It's very diagrammatic. It's very abstract. It's lots of lines and shapes and arrows and words. You know, words are not the mm-hmm. enemy here. They work together, but it's um, but much more diagrammatic in the way that... Um, that conversation is being stuck on that piece of paper. Sure. So uh, to, to, just kind of to unpack it a little bit. Yeah. So what people, what groups, schools, organizations get out of this is kind of a, not necessarily a narrative uh, in the drawing, but kind of a way to see things that may not have been clear to them once they see it all laid out, sort of like data visualization. Yeah, that's part of it for sure. There, I do have colleagues who do love narrative more than I do. I'm not that person. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I don't think, I don't tend to think linearly. I think all at once. So I'm always as a conversation's happening, I'm not creating a narrative flow. I'm creating sort of what's the composition where all these pieces fit together. And so the, sure. the value is um, that one of the basic things is that the, the people in that room feel listened to, you know, which mm-hmm. which qualitatively changes what happens in that room. Um, you know, so many times you go into a meeting saying, oh, I know what I want to say. I know what my idea is. And then once they say it and I put it on that piece of paper, it frees them up to listen and be more collaborative. Um, so that's one of the things that definitely helps people focus. It definitely helps them feel productive because, you know, you can't argue with how many square feet of drawing, you know, ha- are, are accumulated over the course of a meeting, no matter, you know, what sure. length it is, it's very clear what they've gotten done. And it helps them, again, get out of, get out of their own experience and see what the group experience is. What's the shared language? You know, what are the, what, what, where, where do we overlap? Where do we not overlap? All those kind of mm-hmm. things are made much clearer on that piece of paper. Sure. And so that's when you're facilitating it. One of the things that you state that I really love is you said that drawing is your best thinking tool. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, how that works? Yeah, for sure. I think, um, and again, drawing is a word that a lot of people are afraid of, right? Because mm-hmm. they had that bad experience as a kid. Whether somebody outside of them, you know, the, even if it may, might have been an outer critic, like a teacher mm-hmm. or a fellow student or a sibling or a parent, or it might be that inner critic just comparing themselves to others. But for so many people that, you know, that drawing switch flips off and you used, you know, when you made those drawings as a little, little squirt before, you know, 
you really before it really looked like anything representational, right? Mm-hmm. You were still making meaning of your of your life and the world around you. Sure. And when people turn that drawing switch off, they lose that amazing tool. And so, you know, what I'm trying to do is help people who, you know, pe- people have who have switched off that switch mm-hmm. to switch it back on and say, you know what? This is a very different type of drawing. There's different types of drawing, but what I want to teach you is is how to think through your ideas because drawing is spatial drawing is Mm -hmm. tangible you know it's not linear like i you know we're taught in school you know very much the paradigm is linear and word-based you know so everything has to line up left to right and top to bottom like words on a page right um you know there are definitely times a list is great there's definitely times the text is great but you know i'd like to say like when's the last time you solved a problem in a straight line right (laughs) you know things are more complex than that so the great thing about drawing is it lets you it lets you put different parts of something in different places on the page, you get to use scale to decide, you know, what things are bigger, what parts of something is bigger than other parts. Sure. You can use really simple lines to connect ideas. Um, so again, that very simple diagrammatic kind of drawing really helps you think through your ideas because a drawing is made of countless choices. You know, what's mm-hmm. the color? What's the shape? Where is it mm-hmm. placed on the page? What's the scale? All those, all those choices that go into a drawing are helping you make decisions and helping you make meaning. So my, my goal is to help people switch that, flip that switch back on and help them understand what those visual choices are. Mm -hmm. So they don't feel like, you know, they can't draw a straight line, you know, all those, all that stuff. We feel like, you know, I can't do this because I can't draw. Well, let's talk about what are these very simple visual choices Mm -hmm. and, you know, again, diagrammatic and abstract that helps them see how their ideas relate to each other and help them make awesome stuff happen. Sure. So with that, I mean, I think visual thinking is a term that is increasingly used. I mean, certainly wasn't used for, I mean, you know, for the last yeah. 50 years, but is increasingly used in the last few years. So is all of this under the umbrella of visual thinking? Absolutely. And that's the thing. It's like, you know, I've been doing a lot of work. I'm really excited to be publishing more work this year about helping people identify as a visual thinker, mm-hmm. because I think, you know, it ha- it's not a term that's used a lot. People don't walk down the street thinking, I'm a visual thinker. Let mm-hmm. me grab some paper and pen, right? And some people do it naturally, right? right. They're already doing it. Um, so, and, and then one kind of outlet for that or one application of that would be graphic facilitation. Mm-hmm. But it's not just about, you know, getting hired to draw for people in that specific role. It really is every type of work that can can be supported by just grabbing a piece of paper and pen and getting those ideas out of your head mm-hmm. and onto that piece of paper. So you kind of touched on this a second ago, but I mean, are some people more inclined or predisposed to think visually? I think so. You know, I, it's, it's, I'm, I'm saddened by the fact that learning styles and different, you know, um, uh, learning preferences are you know kind of getting taking a beating right now because of the way things are researched or studied. Sure. I do think people, I mean, I, I was pulled out of kindergarten to take spatial reasoning tests. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> clearly, you know, I came, I, I was wired, you know, I came out of the womb with some, some definite aptitudes for that from the start. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are going to be folks who are like that, right? The folks who do like to think with their hands, they do like working things out. You know, the kinesthetic folks who, you know, if you, if you put them in that desk chair, um, it just cuts off so much of the, their way of, of letting, letting themselves be in their body and be in their mind. Sure. Um, so there's definitely those folks. Um, I definitely think the opposite, you know, there are the opposite folks who are very happy with being auditory, you know, taking things in through hearing by reading things. But in the middle, there's a whole lot of people who it may not be the way they really feel like they were like born to think, but there's so much that's learnable. 
Mm-hmm. So I like to say, like, you know, I'm here to help you learn what these choices are. And, you know, you're going to make use of them in the way that makes most sense for you. Like, there isn't one right answer with any of this, but it is a tool that you can use. Um, and I, what I love is that, you know, people get to get to use those tools, you know, for in so many different ways. But it is very, very learnable. I think a lot of people go, yeah, 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 but you can draw. And yeah, I do have a lot of experience. But, mm-hmm. you know, all of that is built up to help you, you know, like, I love that I've accumulated this experience. So now that I can break down the complexity of visual thinking mm-hmm. into those learnable pieces. Because I think there's a lot, a lot that you may have a predisposition predisposition for it, but mm-hmm. I think there's a lot that's learnable. So you may be using the analogy of like literacy. I mean, there are some people who kind of just, auto, I mean, I wouldn't say automatically, but naturally learn to read or teach themselves to read. Then on the other end of the spectrum, there are people who struggle to learn to read. But the point is that everyone can learn to read and use reading and writing as a tool in whatever path they choose in life. Absolutely. I finally made it to one of the IVLA conferences, which is the International Visual Literacy Association. Mm-hmm. And so they use that metaphor of literacy. And it's, it is mostly academics. Um, it was funny to come in as, as an outsider. And, you know, the vernacular that they use is we decode images and we encode images, right? Mm-hmm. So when we decode, that's our role as a viewer. Mm-hmm. And then encoding is our, our um, role as a maker or drawer. And, um, Unfortunately, a whole lot of what they're doing is still on the decode side right? Um, and not a lot about how the heck do you, you know, so kind of the close reading of images versus how the heck do you make these drawings for yourself. And I think that I've learned over time, you know, because again, that baggage around I can't draw, you know, the drawing switch being flipped off. Right. I'm recognizing more and more, especially as our culture gets more and more visual, a whole lot of us are walking around with massive amounts of sophistication as viewers. Mm-hmm. You know, the way we read images has become so ingrained and innate, but there's that huge gap between that and actually knowing that you could make some kind of drawing for yourself. Sure. Um, so you're to help bridge those two sides. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. So in part two of your second book, The Ideas Shapers, The Power of Putting Your Thinking into Your Own Hands, you describe five steps to capturing and thinking about your ideas. I was wondering if we could kind of go through each one of those five and you could talk about them briefly. Sure. Uh, so the first one is you, I talk about this in my, in my TEDx talk. So that's from 2013 called shape your thinking. Mm -hmm. So if folks want to hear this again, Mm -hmm. um, with more visuals, um, this is, you know, this is kind of the, this, this basic structure of the idea shapers, which is breaking down that complexity. Like each idea shaper is one visual thinking concept, Mm -hmm. but they're kind of held within five steps, which are the five fingers, the four fingers and the thumb on your hand. Sure. And so imagine you have something really complex you're working on and you've got, you know, either a whole lot of ideas in your head or a whole lot of research or material in front of you. Mm-hmm. And the first step, that step number one is chunking. Mm-hmm. So that means you're looking at that big pile of stuff and pulling out the most relevant pieces. So that at that point, your thinking really is around what stays in and what stays out, what's what's useful to what I'm trying to solve. Mm-hmm. And then once you got those those relevant chunks pulled out, the second step is sorting and grouping. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot of filtering that information and saying, okay, are there different categories around what I'm thinking about or what I'm hearing? Um, and this, you know, a lot of what I describe in the idea shapers is very internal. Like it is just between you and the piece of paper. Mm-hmm. But of course, visual thinking can work brilliantly as a student, as a listener, you know, or what I do as a graphic facilitator. So sometimes it is a much more external source where you're listening or watching something mm-hmm. or somebody or a group. Um, but generally, you know, you're, you're thinking about, 
here's, here's, here's what I know I need to solve this thing. So where are the similarities and where are the differences? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how do I filter this? How do I flag different ideas to help me understand how those, what those categories are, you know, just, and it's, for me, it's, my goal was that each of each individual idea shaper was so basic that you kind of went, duh, mm-hmm. but it helps you become more aware of those choices that you're making, you know, and you're not making them in order. So the book needed, you know, the book is a linear format, right? The mm-hmm. pages have to go in an order, but all these things are happening very naturally at once. Sure. So that second step, sorting and grouping the chunks. Mm-hmm. The third one is connect and contain. And this is using lines to either connect one idea to another or, um, you know, draw lines around things to contain a grouping of ideas. Sure. And, um, you know, even with a very simple line, with the thickness of the line, the color of the line, whether it's an arrow, you know, all these dotted lines to show a potential connection between two things. Mm-hmm. There's a massive amount of, of stuff you can communicate to yourself or to a group or in conversation with somebody just with lines, right. just knowing that, you know, okay, I'm not sure this is something yet. So I'm going to draw it in a, the, draw the connection in a dotted line, you know, so much you can do there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fourth step is scale. And that is both what is the relative scale of ideas within something you're working on? So is this a bigger idea, you know, or is this a main idea or is this a, a supporting idea? So that is, you know, that you're thinking about how do these ideas relate that they aren't all the same size mm-hmm. um, because there is hierarchy, there is structure to what you're working on. Uh, and then it also means what is the scale of the canvas you're working on? Mm-hmm. So when I'm working as a graphic facilitator, I'm working on a giant sheet of paper that's four feet tall and six to eight feet wide. Mm-hmm. So that gives me a giant canvas to capture a whole lot of detail and make those connections and synthesize that information. And you see, you know, it depends on, you know, it depends on the event, but it could be an hour, could be two hours of conversation or keynotes on that giant piece of paper. Mm-hmm. But by contrast, you can use a really, really small canvas, like a post-it note, um, you know, an index card. And the great thing about that is it flips that and you, instead of being expansive in your thinking with a giant sheet of paper, with a small piece of paper, you have to really distill and get a lot more selective Mm -hmm. in what you're putting on that piece of paper. And of course, you know, one of my favorite concepts is the stack, which is just thinking modularly, you know, Mm -hmm. using index cards to write a paper or craft a speech. Um, And then finally, so... Um, I've given you the the four fingers, and I love that the scale is a little pinky. Mm-hmm. But the great thing is that fifth step is your thumb, and that's when you grasp information in a new way. Mm-hmm. So all the idea shapers in that fifth step of grasping is really what is that higher level of thinking that you're doing? Where are you seeing those patterns? What kind of conclusions are you making? What new insights are you given because you went through those four steps and making sure. that drawing? So this, I mean, it sounds like this is a process of getting the abstract things in our heads that we really can't share in their pure form with anybody else. These are a way to make these more concrete, but it also sounds like you're kind of saying that then once these things are on paper, they then go back to your brain and there's kind of a constant flow and cycle between this um, visual thinking and your actual, you know, internal thinking. Absolutely. One of the one of the idea shapers is I call it the iterator because mm-hmm. uh, it is about iteration. It is a loop. So with the iterator, you know, it is working in cycles. And like you said, you get it out and then you see what you're working with and you're not trying to hold everything in our brains at once. Mm-hmm. We know how exhausting that is. Right. Sure. So 
at the very, very basic thing, and this works if you're writing a list too, but at the very basic thing that, that visual thinking can do for you is to give you the relief of being overwhelmed just by getting that stuff out of your head and onto paper. Mm-hmm. It may think that there's, you may feel like there's dozens and dozens of ideas around a certain topic or, you know, aspects of a certain problem that's really keeping you up at night. But once you actually get that out, you kind of realize, no, actually there's, there's a fairly finite number of things. So the relief part is an absolute plus, And I use it all the time for that. Mm-hmm. But again, once you do get it on that piece of paper, like you said, you're seeing it from a new perspective. It is now outside of yourself. And so that's when you can, you know, and, and with those visual choices about scale, about placement, all that good stuff, mm-hmm. you know, that making those choices are definitely changing, you know, that stuff that came out of your head so that then you can go, okay, wait a second. All right, this is pretty good. This is a good draft. And now let me grab a new piece of paper or mm-hmm. erase or cross out or any of those kind of things and build off of, you know, what you've drawn. And it just gets more and more refined, just like you do with writing and writing drafts. Yeah. Um, backing up just a little bit, I was really interested in, you know, kind of reading about how, I mean, this was an in, an industry and a really a profession that was just evolving as you were getting into it. So what was it like? I mean, like back in the late nineties, like getting into this when it really wasn't, I mean, I know probably at dinner parties, when you say I'm a graphic facilitator, people say, what are you talking about? But yeah, what was sure. it like, just like kind of being on the ground floor of this and kind of growing up with the industry as it grew? Yeah, that's a great, great question. Uh, so there, the work has been around for over 30 years. It kind of depends on who you ask and, mm-hmm. and where you sort, sort of try to make a starting point. Um, so I, I consider myself kind of like a second wave person who's helping to really educate a third wave in this mm-hmm. field. Um, it was it's it was this weird great time where it was the late 90s it was um the middle of the consulting boom it mm-hmm. was the start management consulting boom it was the start of the tech boom and it, there was so much happening and you know again i was really lucky that i like literally showed up for this job interview you know I didn't know which which end was up. I had been a printmaker and art studio art major at a mm-hmm. liberal arts college, but you know, studying art. And then somebody somebody just had this intuitive response when they saw the physical space these workshops happened in, mm-hmm. and said, "This is very brandy." So they encouraged me to go interview. So I'm interviewing with this gentleman, and as soon as he heard that I could draw, he lit up and he pointed to somebody somebody who was way across the space at a giant dry erase board. This this particular space was. Every piece of furniture, every every wall in the space was dry erase and magnetic and movable. So oh, wow. it was this beautiful, yeah. I mean, very much learned right off the bat what how an environment changes how people do the work. And this particular process was from a company called MG Taylor, which stood for Matt and Gail Taylor. Matt was an architect and Gail was a Montessori school teacher. Mm-hmm. And the two of them and their b- brilliant group of colleagues um, really thought about how do you change group process, not only with the environment, and the physical tools, but the processes you put folks through. So I, I mean, the first thing was, I was just really excited that, you know, to see somebody drawing and do this. And the interviewer said, you're going to do it in 20 minutes. I'm like, of oh, course man. I am. Yeah. Right. I mean, too young to, you know, too young to be scared. And, and it just happened in my experience, my very first semester, I went to Grinnell college in Iowa, my very first semester, I drew out a speech as I gave it. Mm-hmm. And it happened to be for a, an English professor, very, very word based. You know, sure. she looked she looked at me like it was an alien who dropped from the sky. You know, but for me, it just made sense to draw out on the chalkboard as I gave this particular speech. So the seed was there, right? Sure. Had no idea, had no idea I could get paid for it. You know, any of that. But then four years later, just happened on this interview, and he was so excited I could draw, and he said twenty minutes. I, and so that's how I fell into it, right? Mm-hmm. So for me personally. Um, a lot of people come from 
when they do that specific work, they either come from the art side, Mm -hmm. so they have the visual skills, um, or they generally come from the people side and they have much better listening skills. Mm -hmm. Usually it tends to be, you got one or you got the other. I'm really lucky. That was one of the, um, you know, one of the, uh, gifts of a dysfunctional family and childhood was getting to being an extremely good listener Mm -hmm. and being very intuitive and aware of, uh, dynamics, you know, body language dynamics, Mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. You know, the stuff kept me kept me safe as a kid actually made it really useful when I was, you know, 20, what, 20 years old Mm -hmm. and fell into this work. Right. Interesting. 22. Yeah. Um, so it was really exciting because, you know, there was just so much business happening. Right. So there's a whole lot of energy around just the time, you know, being in that business, but, the extremely fortunate thing was was falling into not just falling into the work, but falling into an environment that was so beautifully facilitated. So it was MG Taylor's process um, with Ernst and Young's clients. So I was working mm-hmm. with Ernst and Young as a contractor. So I was incredibly fortunate that it wasn't just about having a roll of paper and markers. Mm-hmm. It truly was how every single choice I'm making is making meaning for that group. You know, I describe mm-hmm. that as how you make meaning for yourself, but now I'm in service to that group, making the meaning for them. For them, um, And the other thing was that because it was Ernst & Young's clients, I got to work with every industry under the sun. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of folks who do this work who haven't had that kind of experience, they limit their thinking and they think, well, only certain people are going to get this. Truly, the I've seen every sector, every kind of industry I've worked with, and the only folks who it doesn't work for and it's not a match is if they fear transparency mm-hmm. which could be any industry or any it just that really depends on company culture if they fear transparency me listening to what they're saying and getting it up on that piece of paper is too scary mm-hmm. you know it's too risky it's making those things you know way more accountable because oh, yeah. they're on that piece of paper right so you know those are things that you know that that was some real ex- some of the real excitement back then mm-hmm. though like you said back then if i told people what i did for a living <laughs> you know you just get the the mile long stare through you like uh huh it, that has gotten a lot better um and also being in chicago my entire 23 year career so far has helped because now i'm in a space and usually somebody's seen me <laughs> at some kind of meeting sure so that helps but yeah so what's I guess that what's interesting to me also is that this entire career that you had from the very beginning of this has kind of straddled. Um, I mean, not only like the dot com kind of bust, but the rise yeah. of the internet as we know it, and um, the rise of like smartphones and tablets and digital tools making some things easier and if not better. So what has changed in the last twenty plus years since you started with the impact of those tools? That's, that's such a good question. Um, there are colleagues who love working on tablets. Um, I think that can be really effective, especially for very, very large scale events where, you know, if I'm in the room at a board that's maybe eight feet wide, but there's, you know, 400 people in the room, Mm -hmm. the graphic part of my work is not very real time because so Mm -hmm. few people can actually see what I'm doing. Right. So there are colleagues who use tablets and they project what they're doing. Um, there's a ton of people who, who use digital tools. I don't knock them. Mm -hmm. Um, my two caveats are there is still something so novel about having a giant sheet of paper, mm-hmm. you know, specifically for graphic facilitation that um, it just cha- it's like a physical object in the room. And that, and that physical drawing becomes a really wonderful tool for diffusing conflict because they, if, if there is tension in the room, they can point at the drawing instead of each other. Mm-hmm. So I, there's, there are distinct, still, still distinct qualities of just good old fashioned paper and pen. Mm-hmm. The other issue is, as much as I love 
that there's, you know, you can draw so fast and capture and distribute way faster than I can do with a physical drawing. Um, people are already so well trained in tuning out screens because mm-hmm. we have them on the back of the cab, you know, the seat in the cab. We have them in the grocery line, you know, they're everywhere. So, you know, it tends to be something that people just kind of see as noise. They don't engage in the same way with the physical drawing. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, and just personally, I still have not found any stylist that works as fast as I can draw. And of course, just personally, because I am so hands on, you know, I, that the nuance and the and the the texture the tactile you know how tactile physical drawing is 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 where i'm going to stay sure but it's it, it's definitely grown a lot in those in those ways for sure so do you see strategies working like in classrooms i mean do you do you find that there are tools that you teach that work for teachers especially like i mean not just k through 12 but all the way up um graduate school undergrad um, are there things you you tell teachers that are good strategies for getting visual thinking happening in the classroom? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the biggest things is just having some stuff in the room, right? Mm-hmm. One, they just if if they're receptive, they're probably already over this. But step one is just it's not doodling, it's not mindless, it's not it's not a distraction. Mm-hmm. You know, the, it is a way that people can truly make meaning. Um, so part of it's just you know sweeping away that stuff, right? So once you realize that a student, you know, there, there are students in your classroom who may really love this tool, mm-hmm. you know, one is just giving them a blank sheet of paper, letting them do it, right? That's mm-hmm. one of the things I really, really appreciated with your with your conversation with Kaz Holman was, you know, don't don't be so prescriptive about what the, you know, how to use these tools, like mm-hmm. just give them tools and see what they do with them. Um, a lot of class, a lot of teachers um, use mind mapping, which is one specific technique mm-hmm. uh, created by a gentleman named Tony Buzan. And I think it's a good gateway, but it, it still is very, very prescriptive. It's right. basically a hub, you know, a central idea in the center and then these spokes, mm-hmm. which is basically like a spatial outline. Right. You know, it's, it's still very text-based. Um, and I do think, especially for teachers who want very concrete steps that they can teach to their students, it's useful for that. But I do think it's very, very limited. Right. Um, so the biggest things are just giving fo- giving kids the tools, or I should say people in <laughs> whatever age, right? Right. Um, and I do think it is useful to teach some of these idea shapers, some of these concepts, um, just to get people started. So the, my two favorite to teach people are um, connectors, mm-hmm. because I can I can draw a set of connectors up on a, on a whiteboard or a chalkboard or a piece of paper, or flip chart, any of those surfaces, mm-hmm. I can draw them and not say what they're representing. And then I ask the group, like, what, what do you think the relationship between these two circles are if there's this kind of line between them? And it is, you know, it, it's incredibly, it's incredible the patterns of responses. You know, mm-hmm. people know what those lines mean. And they also know that they can make those lines for themselves. Um, and then the containers, same kind of thing. If you put something in a thought bubble, you mm-hmm. know, put some words surrounded by a thought bubble that feels different than if you put it in a box with square edges Mm -hmm. or square corners. So, you know, those are a couple of my favorite kind of, you know, a beginner, not they're really powerful. So it's not as if they're simple, um, but they're, they're very easy, easily to access and use immediately. Um, But I think that's the the biggest thing is just, just being open-minded about having the materials around so people can work in the ways they work best. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's a matter of thinking about um, some of these very, very, very basic ways to draw lines, draw shapes. And again, none of this is about, you know, my drawing you and you, it looks like you, right? right. None of this is, it's much more abstract. It's not because the it's the representational drawing, the, the drawing to see. Mm-hmm. I've got this model called the draw quad. And one of the corners of this two by two matrix is drawing to see. And the issue is that drawing to drawing to represent drawing to see is an incredibly useful skill. Mm-hmm. But 
that's the one that freaks everybody out. So they so they can't even open their mind to those other three parts of that model that can really help them do fantastic things. Yeah, I was listening to uh, Linda Berry talk about drawing recently as related to little kids. And she was saying around eight, when they figure out that they can't draw a hand is when they're, they say, okay, I'm not an artist. And then they, you know, cause if you ask a room full of preschoolers, if you could, they can draw, they all raise their hands, but at, later on, very few do. Um, so you're saying, so, I mean, having the materials is kind of step one, if you're a teacher of any, yep. any working with any age group, but also kind of just kind of priming the pump with some strategies. And then I imagine that teachers need to be able to accept that, um, their students may come up with their own um, language for this. And then part of them explaining this language and what, how, what they're basically demonstrating what they're thinking, um, even while creating the language that they use for visual thinking, even if it's different than what the teachers introduced. Yeah, absolutely. I want to back up one second, and then talk about that. The, I was nodding very loudly, you know, while you talked about Linda Berry. And because I draw in front of people, I don't, I think it far more is facilitation than a performance, but mm-hmm. I am in front of people doing this and people will come up to me and tell me exactly how old they were, what they were drawing, and who told them they couldn't draw. Like it's know. that visceral, that strong of a memory for them, right? So I think that um, one thing I talk about in the idea shapers is sometimes you have, I would love for us to be in situations in classrooms and workplaces where we can do this work much more, much more overtly. So you mm-hmm. could, you know, write something up on a whiteboard and have a conversation around it. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, I do think for a lot of folks, they have to be more covert, mm-hmm. meaning, you know, maybe you have to write a paper for a class and you do the visual thinking on your side. And that helps you clarify that, oh, you know, it turns out, you know, there's five points to what I'm trying to say and how do they relate to each other. Um, but then the teacher needs a physical paper written in words. Sure. Um, so sometimes it can be that more covert action that gets you to the product you need to make. Like I love talking about in that four, um, that model, the draw quad, there's two types of drawing. There's process focused drawing and product focused drawing mm-hmm. and product focused drawings like drawing your portrait. They have to be more refined and accurate to be effective. But the beautiful thing about the process-oriented drawings, the process-focused drawings, are that them being fast and messy is actually better. Mm-hmm. So if, I, if I'm in a meeting and I'm creating something that's too refined, when they're in that really messy front end of some kind of project, you know, if everything is in a, in a you know, right-angled box and looks decided, that's, way, that's taking it way, way too close to product when they're still you know, very much working in that process mode. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, you know, you might covertly have to work work the process side of writing a paper, but the product's going to have to be text. I do hope over time, because you can see someone's thinking, because it can be such a great communication tool, you know, to, to point something out and say, okay, what do you mean? Like, what what's going on here? Mm-hmm. Um, that it makes that thinking so tangible that I am hoping that more and more, as we do get more sophisticated as those encoders and have more more language to talk about this kind of process focused drawing that we can be more overt, that it does become the kind of tools we just use naturally. Mm -hmm. So I, we've touched on this a little bit. So how do, what do you do when you encounter somebody, whether it be a child, teenager, adult who says, I can't draw. Um, they just kind of hard stop. They, they don't draw because they either had that experience you described or someone, um, unfortunately told them they couldn't, or they compared themselves to, you know, Sergeant or somebody and decided they weren't them and should pursue something else. Yeah, for sure. First, you know, the, the, there's very common things people say, like they say, I can't draw a straight line. 
And I say, that's why you have a ruler. That's mm-hmm. okay. You know? yeah. <laughs> or they say, I haven't drawn, you know, I can't, I draw like a seven year old. And it's like, yeah, that's because you stopped drawing when you were seven. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things, you know, we have that phrase practice makes perfect. Mm-hmm. And believe me, you know, my outer critic of my dad, I, I don't know, I've, I've had to recover from, from some, from some perfectionism, mm-hmm. but um, you know, that you, you, your skill level is at seven years old, because again, that's when you stopped. You can, you can pick that up at any time. And instead of practice makes perfect, I would say practice makes progress. Mm-hmm. You know, and and that that, right, and and when I talk, uh, (laughs) I think one of the most important things I put out in the world, and because I see how my learners use it and how much it helps them shush that inner critic, is when they they're getting much more um, aware of when they need to be process focused and when they need to be product focused. And one of my phrases I say over and over again is process over product. Mm -hmm. So. You know, it's just are do you even need to be thinking about product right now? Because mm-hmm. that inner critic is the one who's saying, no, that's that those things don't line up right or that circle's drawn weird, right? Mm-hmm. So what I say when I'm talking to folks, in my case, adults, um, I say with product focused drawings, we judge them as being good or bad or pretty or ugly. Mm-hmm. When when we're making process focused drawings, which is what I'm here to help you do, the only the only judgment around that that drawing or that uh, um, criticism of that, the only test, that's what I'm trying to say. The only test of that drawing is, did it get you a step farther in what you're trying to do? Sure. That's it. And that tends to be the door opener. Um, I taught this group. I was, it was so great. It was, um, you know, not the first folks you'd think of, right? I think everyone always assumes you already have to work with people who know how to draw, which is absolutely not true. Mm -hmm. If I work with people who come from the art side, they have to actually unlearn a lot mm-hmm. <laughs> versus folks who have no drawing skills or stopped when they were seven. It's so easy to add some skills, you know, to their toolbox versus mm-hmm. unlearning the other stuff. But I was working with a group. They were salespeople for a food distribution company. And I was, I, you know, I came in and did a, did my kind of, uh, you know, the, the um, sage on the stage part of keynoting. But then we segued into breakout sessions where they were immediately using the skills I just taught them. I showed them containers. I mm-hmm. showed them connectors. And it was so great because one gentleman who was like one of the most senior people in the room, we had covered the tables in paper. He immediately took the paper off the table and onto the floor. And he's like on his hands and knees, like he's ready. Oh, wow. You know, he started the keynote, like giving you that kind of like late, like sitting back, like, I don't know about this, but as I talked to, you know, lean forward more and more. Oh yeah. Um, and it was great. That was fantastic. And then there was another gentleman who he came up to me towards the end of it and, and body language wise, <laughs> he was a big, tall guy and he was, he had his arms crossed in front of him and his shoulders were up to his ears. Oh, wow. But he told me like, this is so great. I feel like a little kid. (laughs) So, so clearly there was some joy he was getting from this, but there was still Mm -hmm. that tension of like, this is all really new. So process, you know, really thinking about only testing this type of drawing with, is it helping you get something done has been a great way to just dislodge that inner critic or shush it, you know, just enough that folks can start using the tools. And then once they start using the tools, they see how, how, how effective they are. Yeah. uh, One of the things that I read that you wrote about the inner critic, and I mean, I think we all have that inner critic, that voice saying, I can't do this. This is too hard. I'm not smart enough. But you have said that the drawing is like your secret weapon for slaying the inner critic. Um, I mean, so what other ways does does drawing mitigate that inner critic? I think the biggest thing, you know, much like I said, with graphic facilitation, the only people who don't like graphic facilitation in their meetings are people who fear transparency. Mm -hmm. The inner critic doesn't want you to succeed. 
The mm-hmm. inner critic doesn't want you to make things happen. So truly by taking those ideas, even if they're really squishy and messy and not formed yet, mm-hmm. just that simple act of getting it on paper is what slays that inner critic because now it's now it's something physical and it's outside of you and you can get a different perspective on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, you know, that's, I'm getting chills talking about this because I'm such a nerd for this, but mm-hmm. I do truly believe that just that simple act of getting those thoughts and feelings and ideas out of your head and outside of yourself no matter how messy that drawing is, you know, even messy drawings can create clarity for yourself mm-hmm. that those are the things that, you know, that's the kind of action you're taking that does shut up that inner critic because, mm-hmm. you know, you're making something happen. Like you're moving forward. You know, the inner critic loves to keep you stuck. Yeah. And I've, I think related to that, I've, there's a lot of sleep researchers that are saying, you know, to do that right before you go to sleep, to get a pad and paper and keep it next to your bed and kind of just let all of that out. And it will help you not be so preoccupied as you try to start your sleep cycle, you kind of have, have put that off till tomorrow when you can actually tackle it and gotten it all out of your mind. Absolutely. I, I'm, I'm lucky to have pretty sound sleep habits and, um, you know, sleep chemistry. But I say every so often I get something I call idea somnia, mm-hmm. where it's, you know, sometimes it is stress. Like that's, I'm, I'm like every other person there. But there are some days where it's, I, I go to bed and it's like just too many ideas and I grab a stack of index cards. And in the dark, they look like horrible the next morning. I like, I, I just like let myself scribble them down on, you know, in, index cards and then I can, you know, with them in the morning. Right. For sure. So one of the things is, yeah, that I've read that you've been working on recently is kind of, and you mentioned this when you're talking about, you know, which you were in the second wave and there's a third wave now, but a lot of your work now is kind of helping the next generation of graphic facilitators. So what kind of things are you doing with like the people who are aspiring to this work? Yeah. And, and so I'm more than happy to teach that smaller subset of graphic facilitators, but really my my goal is to help all visual thinkers. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, I'm really excited to be building more and more online courses. Um, I've My first book, so talking about graphic facilitators specifically, my first book I wrote in 2012 was called The Graphic Facilitator's Guide. Mm-hmm. And that was because I was seeing people who didn't understand, like they, they thought if I have a roll of papers and markers, I can do this work. Um, it really was about you know, what are the listening skills? What are the thinking skills? And yes, what are the drawing skills mm-hmm. you need to be able to do this work? But also what are your responsibilities to the people you're supporting, those participants and those clients? Um, and now, you know, building out a course that's, you know, the version, the online version of that, online course version of that video-based um, and how the heck do you do this work as a business? Mm-hmm. Um, but really the, you know, my love is, is I, I say that I've, I'm personally transitioning my work from being that one person in the room drawing for the group Two, teaching everyone in the room how to build these skills for themselves. So if you do want to be a graphic facilitator, I've got really good resources for you. But what I love is seeing how many different ways people are using these skills. You know, educators, I love that, um, you know, the great thing about educators is they're going to be demonstrating these things in front of their students. So that's Mm -hmm. fantastic. Um, But truly any kind of work where you're dealing with messy, complex problems is well suited for this. Or if you're trying to shape some kind of communication piece you're making. You know, again, there's there's so many different ways this can work. With the graphic facilitators, I'm more than happy to share my experience. I'm, I'm working right now on the course that is specifically about the work in the room. And it's, it is a joy to be able to pour all this experience, you know, into mm-hmm. those lessons because, you know, boy, howdy, you know, you got your inner critic about drawing and now you're going to do it in front of people. Oh, well. So, yeah. so much of it is really that the course was... The course definitely has skill building in it, but with both the courses about graphic facilitation, it is a whole lot of kind of pep talks and how to shift your mindset. You know, like 
uh, so many people do this work and they think they're supposed to be a recording device. Right. And it's like, that's not your role. You're there as a human, as somebody with an, you know, who's got this outside position and these specific skills, you know, so, so a lot of it is about the mindset stuff, just that inner critic stuff that we all have. Um, so I'm, I'm very happy to help anyone and everyone shush that inner critic. So it almost sounds like over the last 20 plus years, your even your definition of graphic facilitator has evolved from you are the one person doing this for other people to you are the person in the room encouraging other people to do this for themselves and maybe even to be able to understand the drawings you're doing and maybe giving them vocabulary to do this in a more robust and um, clearer way. Yeah, I think that it's, it's a tricky thing because we do need language to understand and have common conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think, you know, graphic facilitation is a specific role um, and it has specific functions, but it doesn't have to be that rigid that it is only the, the one person mm-hmm. drawing for the group. I mean, the very final principle in the first book is give them the markers. You know, when you realize, you know, when, when it doesn't, when a group doesn't need you to be drawing, but you actually need to give them the markers and help them get mm-hmm. those ideas out. Like that example with the gentleman working on the floor and the gentleman with the very tense shoulders, mm-hmm. um, you know, that there, there's definitely, um, uh, beautiful kind of liminal spaces in there. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's truly, my, I love the, I always talk about and just between colleagues, you know, we've got this gorgeous, deep, small pool of graphic facilitators, or some folks call themselves graphic recorders or scribes mm-hmm. or, or visual practitioners is kind of like a little bit larger container. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a gorgeous, deep, very deep pool. But personally, I'm super excited to, to grow, you know, this ocean of visual thinkers, mm-hmm. you know, who truly aren't thinking like, because the, what, what I do as a graphic facilitator, especially the listening skills and the processing and the synthesizing, mm-hmm. that's powerful for, I can't think of what role that wouldn't be powerful for, right? right? So there's a ton of transfer, transferable skills from that specific role, uh, whether you know you ever get hired to, to be that person in the room. Sure, can be used anywhere. So where yeah. can people go to find more about your work? So you can go to my site, which is loosetooth.com. My site turned 20 years old last year, and it's you know it's 20 years of answering the question, why is it called Loose Tooth? It doesn't describe what I do, but it's memorable. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remembered it. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, so loosetooth.com, that's the home for all my work and you can find the books and the online courses. And I'm really, I actually, this has been scary just as we're recording this over the past couple of weeks, I actually kind of molted the skin of the old site mm-hmm. and started fresh. So there's fewer pages, but it's way clearer <laughs> as my own work has evolved. So um, yeah. So loosetooth.com. All right. Well, we'll definitely put that in the show notes. And I just want to say thank you so much, Brandy, for taking the time for this conversation. I know I've learned a lot and I'm sure that everybody listening will have learned a lot about this. Awesome. I do hope, you know, wherever you're at, even if it feels really awkward and it feels really unfamiliar, just grab a piece of paper and a pen and just see what comes out. Again, messy drawings can create clarity. Thanks for listening to the Depth and Light podcast. If you like this or other episodes, please tell a friend about the podcast and leave a review wherever you listen. If you have show ideas or general feedback, please reach out to us at info at depthandlight.com.